Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Recorded live. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Dallas Death Discussion for another Monday night. It is June 26th of 2017. It's hard to believe this is the last Monday in June. The next one will be 4th of July Eve. Next Monday is the 3rd of July already and uh, we'll be into the second half of the year. So uh, time flies when you're having fun. But uh, uh, we are now past the longest day of the year and our days are getting shorter, much to my chagrin. But uh, I don't have any control over that, obviously. But I do enjoy the long days. But uh, I want to welcome everybody to the call. Uh, It is summertime. Our crowds are smaller. Uh, There's no doubt about that. And uh, things have been uh, quieter recently with uh, the number of people uh, that have had issues to discuss and uh, uh, time permitting tonight, I am going to uh, read some material that I have found to hopefully give some people that you know are not familiar with the financial markets and how things are affected and, and why we are in such a predicament in this country now financially and 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 you know of course we talk about financial issues here because this is discussion of debt issues and uh, there's an awful lot of debt out in this world it's not just here in the US it's all over and I'm gonna uh, cover some material on that tonight if we've got time and uh, <clears throat> hopefully this will uh, give the listeners a little more perspective on the situation and really the the grave danger that we are facing uh, in our financial future, uh, which is going to have an effect on things, on many, many people that uh, at this point in time think they're just fine. You know, they've got a job. They, you know, they got some money in the bank. Um, they use their credit cards. They pay them, and you know, they got a fairly new car. You know, they just bought a new car, and they got a low interest rate on it, and this and that. All of these things, where people aren't in any kind of a um, crunch situation right now, they're comfortable with their lives, and they don't think that it's going to change in any kind of dramatic way. You know, well, you know, Tom's had his job, but so-and-so for 19 years, you know. Uh, Other people would get laid off before he'd ever get laid off and this and that. And, you know, we we can pay our bills every week, every month, whatever we got. You know, we've got money in savings, and uh, we're just fine. So, you know, if the economy softens a little bit, we're going to be okay, you know. Well, you've heard me talk in recent weeks about how things are going to do more than just soften. And, uh, you know, I 
it's easy for me to come on here and say this stuff and for people that don't understand anything about the financial aspect of what's going on out here to any real depth other than, you know, in their own smaller world. They don't uh, trade in financial markets like I do. Uh, they haven't been around them for as many years as I have and, and other people have. So they're, they're not exposed to that kind of information. And I want to uh, cover some of that. I, uh, I found something very interesting that's got a lot of uh, good explanation in it as to what's happening and why it's creating the uh, untenable situation that, that we're in that is going to get a lot worse as time goes on. So anyway, uh, before I go any further, I do need to tell everybody that what you hear on this call is discussion. It is Dallas debt discussion. It is not anything uh, having to do with legal advice. We don't know what that is. That's for lawyers to provide. They get paid well for that. Um, sometimes they get paid really well and they don't give very good legal advice. In fact, sometimes it's really bad legal advice. But nevertheless, you won't find legal advice here if you want that. Go find yourself a bar-licensed attorney and let them provide it for you because we don't do it. We discuss issues. That's why this is called Dallas Depth Discussion. It's about education. It's about people helping people and learning about the consumer protection statutes, about the financial system, about utilization of the courts in the proper manner so that you can uh, enforce your rights under these consumer protection statutes. So, uh, Please be aware of that. If you want legal advice, go find a bar-licensed attorney. You're not going to get it here. We don't even know what it is. I couldn't give it if my life depended on it. So with all that said, uh, we always start with good news. And uh, I, you don't need to raise your hand and hit star 8 to... Uh, Bring us good news. If anybody has any good news, all you have to do is speak up, and, and good news can you know, be a lot of different things. You know, Maybe you've had a, uh, a settlement reached, or you've you got something good that's going on. looks like you might uh, get something settled, or you had a good outcome with a uh, dispute in the court, or a, a good hearing, or something like that. Who knows? <clears throat> so if anybody's got any good news, go ahead and speak up. All right. I don't hear any voices popping up. We we have more people. Well, well, I had to I had to clear my voice first. Uh, oh, Dave. how are you? I'm still alive. They uh, uh, they haven't killed me off yet. <laughs> I go out and I do my walk every day, and uh, uh, I'm, every morning I'm grateful that uh, I wake up breathing. Uh, I want to be like you when I grow up. I need to be walking too. <laughs> when she grows up, yeah. yeah. That's what I, you know, Terry. That's what that's that that's what you hear from these thirty-five-year-olds quite often. Oh yeah, really. Look, I wish. <laughs> I don't. I wouldn't do thirty-five over. Oh, if I if I could be thirty-five and know what I know now, oh my goodness, I'd be so dangerous. <laughs> Me I'd be, too. Ha I'd I'd be, be happy be. to be 40, just 40, and know what I know now. Yeah. I would be hell on wheels. Yeah, I'd be a handful, I'll tell you that. But uh, <laughs> Anyway, what do you got for us tonight? Well, I got good news because I finally got 
my motion to vacate into the um, the central office okay. today. Oh, good. I took it there, and I was had the debate with her that I really only had one mo- motion and not two. I tell you, these people that work in these law offices don't get it and be telling you wrong stuff. Yeah, you think? Oh, do we ever get any bad information from anybody? Uh, especially law, in law offices. Oh, oh I can't boy. imagine. They shouldn't be able to do that. Oh. But I, I got that in, and you know, you have to. In my state, when you do your motion to vacate, you have to include the answer or dispositive motion. So um, I put a motion to dismiss um, and a request for sanctions. Right. So I don't expect to get the sanctions, but I just wanted to um, F with them, you know. (laughs) Mess with them a little bit, yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I actually, I actually should have did a separate motion for sanctions, and I understood that in the rules, but I didn't do that because she, she wasn't going to uh, give it to me anyway. Well, so I, I, go ahead, I, go ahead. So I'm just, I got that done. I had excellent. Um, support to get through that. Good. And um, I can't tell you how many times I printed that out to proof it and um, <laughs> how many times I read it. And you just, you really have to know your case and you have to know your rules. Yep. I've been reading rules um, fiercely for a long time and I still can't cite them, you know, by number. And it's so many. But you really have to know the rules. Yes. Go ahead. Oh, I thought somebody said... Yeah, well, I think somebody's talking. They're unmuted. Oh. I muted them. Go ahead. Oh, okay. But you know something that I didn't understand? And I am pretty sure it wasn't in a rule. In my state, they have a central foreclosure mill. I mean, office. (laughs) (laughs) You know, one by the state. And there's certain things you have to do there before um, it goes to your local um, court, right? So it it says that... um, you know, when you do your motion uh, to vacate, you have to file it there. So I get there, and this woman is telling me, and I call to verify, you know. And I get there, and this woman is saying, "Well, no, you have to send it to the lower, to the um, to the local court." I said, "Well, my understanding is I can't send it directly to them until you assign it to them." But it's like crazy. But how do you? find that out. Where do you go to get that information? She said, well, we could do, just we handle the uh, motion to vacate, but we can't handle the motion to dismiss with sanctions. So that's a secret. There's, there's nowhere that tells you 
that that changed where you would file it. Is that crazy? You never know. Well, when I asked for a supervisor, she told me I could cross it out and write in the other court. <laughs> so that was okay with me, and she made copies for me. But I, I'm just saying um, there was nothing in the rules that said that. Where are you supposed to get that information? In law school, right? <laughs> well, I don't even know about really? that. You know? Uh it, some of these courts are really, really, really uh, stacked against uh, the pro size. I mean, let, let's just face it, it. Some of them are. Some of them are not. In fact, a lot of them are not. But some of them, uh, they, uh, there's a culture there. They don't like pro size. They don't want to deal with you. Some of the stuff that you want to do is uh, perfectly acceptable, but it's out of the norm of what they do. So, well, we don't do that here. What do you mean you don't do that there? Do that here. It's it's in the uh, the rules. You have to do it. Well, I don't know if we can. You have to accept it, you know, that kind of stuff. You know, it's, it's this kind of stuff that, uh, that you run into that, uh, uh, you know, it, it makes it... Uh, very difficult for people to uh, move forward in some of these courts, and I know that. You know that's not a secret. So, but you you still have to do the best you can to work through it, and hopefully, some of that that we run into is people just uh, being ignorant as opposed to intentionally trying to you know BS you and throw you off and stuff like that. But you know. Either way, you got to follow the rules, though. And that's the mm-hmm. only thing. That's the one thing that bothers me a little bit. When you say that you did that request for sanctions along with a motion to dismiss, and then you're not supposed to do that, I'm going to suggest that you don't want to do that anymore because what you're showing them is you're not following the rules when you do that. And that's not in your best interest, I don't think. Oh, okay. You know, don't do things that you know are against the rules because then they're going, oh, another one of these pro se's doesn't, they, they don't know the rules, you know. Asking for sanctions and a motion to dismiss instead of putting it in a separate, you know. See what I mean? It's a perception you create for yourself if you do that. And I don't, I don't want to see, yeah, I, I don't want to see you run into problems with them, you know, becoming more prejudiced because, oh, here's another one of these pro se's that doesn't follow the rules. So that's just my suggestion. Yeah, I did ask for leave to amend should any deficiencies be found. Mm -hmm. Oh, there you go. You know, but I I really didn't think she would give give sanctions anyway. Well, she can't. Or, or, well, it's that's right. It's a female judge, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Ah, that's why she. And I hear that she's a beast. Yeah, you said that. <laughs> so, um, you know, she would have to to um give me okay to file that motion to dismiss. 
in her Ask order. Ask to approve the filing of it? Yeah, see, when you um, have to attach a dis- uh, the answer or dispositive motion to your motion to vacate, the, uh, the judge in her order gives you permission to do that filing. Oh, okay. So I wasn't really filing it. I was proposing the filing. Mm-hmm. When they have to give uh, leave to, they have to grant leave for the filing. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So I, I thought I was, you know, kind of stretching it a little. Uh-huh. But, but I understood that I was. The rule clearly says uh, motion for sanctions should be a separate motion. So in my in my state, if it's a separate motion, you got to pay another fifty bucks. Oh and, God! And and I I wasn't trying to do that today. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I if you're not going to get anywhere with it, I sure wouldn't waste fifty bucks on a a motion that I know is going nowhere. No way. Right. Why would I be doing that? Right. But I that's another trying... problem with a lot of these state level courts uh, around various parts of the country is they charge you just to file things. And that is just absolute out-and-out BS. It really is. California, it's terrible. You know, out in California, if you get sued in the state court, for you to reply, I think it costs you $325 to answer a lawsuit. That's all. Gosh. And here, I I remember, what was it, in 2015, I posted on the website, you know, call the courts because they had an open hearing. They were going to raise the fees, and they doubled all the fees. Well, not quite. Motion used to be 30. Now it's 50. But to file your answer is $175. Oh, that's just, you know, you got to pay to answer a lawsuit. The other side had to pay to file it. You know, why should, uh, you know, how is it that, you know, somebody gets sued, and then they have to pay just to be able uh, to uh, uh, appear and, and defend themselves. It's, le- it's legal robbery. And yes, the first, exactly. The first thing that clerk was looking at, she was, and I gave him a cover letter, and I itemized everything that was attached, right? And she said, oh, there's two more motions here. That's more than $50. And that just confirmed for me that they, they really are checking the money first. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's just crazy. Yep. All well, right. Well, I'm glad, you, I'm glad you got that stuff done today. So that is good news. Thank you. You betcha. Thank you. Finishing typing something here in the chat board. Okay. All right. I'm going to see if anybody else has any good news for us. If not, then we'll see if uh, anybody has got questions for us tonight. And uh, if we don't have any questions at the present time, then we'll uh, uh, proceed with uh, covering a little bit of that material that I wanted to to help people understand a little bit more about the financial uh, situation that's going on out here and why we have the problem. So if anybody has a question for us tonight, got issues, star eight, that's how you put yourself in the queue. And uh, 
we uh, we've got a couple of people that uh, raised their hands. Wow, we got uh, boom, boom, boom. We got three of them in here real quick. So let's go to Ohio. You have been unmuted. Go ahead. Hi guys, it's Christine. It's been a while. <laughs> Hi there. Well, yeah, haven't heard your voice in a long time. How you doing? No, I've been pretty busy with personal matters, and I don't have any cases going on right now. So it's called life. Yeah, you know, it is really nice. I've I've been having some life here. <laughs> really oh, nice. Good. Um, uh, also, you know that last case um, that I had the sanctions and everything going on. Yeah. yeah, it's been a while. Um, mm-hmm. That got dismissed, um, but I did get some money out of it. Oh, good. Yeah, so just my filing fees, but, hey, it was better than nothing. Oh, hey, yeah. Heck, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, my question is, um, a little background. My son has this going on with my son. Um, he's got excellent credit. It's between 8 and 950 and he wants to keep his credit score like that. He has I think no 850 is the max that you can get. Uh, I think but he anyway. said 950 was one of them. No, no. I don't, I've never heard of anything higher than 850. Anyway, oh, okay. it doesn't matter. Yeah. But he, then he's got 850. <laughs> yeah, but he's got real good credit. Okay. Yeah, he does, and he's, he's a fanatic about keeping that way. Um, <laughs> so what happened was I've been dealing with this for the last week. This is... This he got a letter from a, a debt collector, and he had no idea he he even owed this debt. It's a utility company, and I've been dealing with them in Ohio. I'll give you the background. We have something called the PIP Plus program for utility companies, and what it is is you pay a percentage of your income, and then they credit the rest of it if you pay that payment on time. Okay, so he had this utility bill in his name. And I switched it to my name. This was the electric bill. And when we did that, they refused to credit that that um, arrearage, which he paid his payments. Okay, this this is yeah, the background. The Pardon? Yeah, what he was entitled to. Yeah. Yeah, what he was entitled to. So I called June 19th and got a hold of uh, the credit department. She says yes, he is due that credit. So they were, she said, call back in four to five days. It would take that amount of time to do it. So I did, and today I called back, and I got the credit department, someone else that didn't know what the hell she was talking about. She says, oh, no, he's not going to get a credit. He's got to pay that, and uh, it's going to do this and that. She just went on and on, and I said, "Uh uh-uh. I said, I gave her the name, and she refused to credit it, so I asked for a supervisor. And the supervisor even gave me a worse hard time. I mean, she was nasty. Anyways, ending result is it didn't get resolved. So um, this here debt collection letter was dated June 12th, but um, I told him he needs to dispute that. I called the PUCO and filed a case on it, and they're going to investigate it tomorrow. They're going to expedite this and do it pretty quick. He said it will be done in 10 days, which will be before almost around the 30 days. But um, the PUCO told me that, He's entitled to that, but the other thing is they're threatening to put it on his credit report next month. And I told him we need to dispute this with Absolutely. The, uh, yeah, I'm going to send out a dispute letter, but 
the PUCO said if he pays this, they are still going to investigate, and if he's entitled to the to the credit, he's going to he'll, have to he'll get it back. Yeah, well, but he, he said should get it back twice if he pays it because he's already owed it. Well, yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, he is. He's owed the credit. Okay, um, but it's been a long time. If he disputes this, can they stick it on his credit report if it's in dispute? Okay, hold after on. After the thirty days, I okay. don't remember. Yeah, just hold on. The word "can" forget that. Okay, because okay. they can do anything they want. Well, yeah, we know that. I mean, okay, but, okay, is legally, it, <laughs> is it is it legal? to do it um yes and and no okay yes it's legal for them to report anything they want to report uh-huh. now is it going to be in violation absolutely because okay. it's already in dispute before they send it to the credit reporting agencies and the moment it lands in the credit reporting agencies the dispute must go, and you know, you need to dispute with the credit reporting agencies. And it had better be marked from the get-go as disputed, because then there's another violation. Okay. Now, you know, meanwhile, the PUC will do their uh, investigation, et cetera, et cetera, and he would have a nice fat chunk of money in his pocket if they insist on going forward with this and damaging his credit. Now, if they do it, if the you know the P, if you don't get it resolved before they do it, excuse me, he can demand when he files that dispute and make sure that the dispute is detailed with the credit reporting agency that it be removed. Now, the credit reporting agencies here lately are being a lot more careful about sticking their own necks out, mm-hmm. you know, because now us consumers, we're getting way too savvy and we're getting way too powerful and they're getting hit a lot. We're getting litigious. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And uh, so chances are they will immediately take it out of there. But remember what we always say, you can't unring that bell. So right, he, that's he, what he's afraid of. Well, no, no, no. It's good that you can't unring the bell. Because, oh, okay. it, because if they do it, there's violations all over the place, and he can go after them for the money. It won't be on his credit report long enough to do him any harm. If his credit score dipped a couple days, it wouldn't hurt him in the least unless that happened to be a day he went to apply for a mortgage. Mm-hmm. Okay, It would get resolved quicker than most things would get resolved because of the situation you just told me. Okay, mm-hmm. and But if they're going to be that stupid then your son needs to be smart enough to hold their butts to the fire and make them pay for their stupidity. Oh, yeah, he said he would, yeah, because his credit is everything to him. Yeah, a lot of people right. don't like that, but he is. Well, he's the kind of guy who can go before a jury with 
uh, emotional distress <laughs> to <laughs> the <could>. extreme <laughs> and be very good on the stand describing it. You know uh-huh. what I'm saying? Yeah. And, you know, I, I would say you do every, you cross all your T's and dot your I's on your end, do the disputes, follow up like you're doing with the PUC, make sure you document those phone calls that you had. Would have been better if you recorded them, but I don't know what your state law is. It, yeah, we can record. You know what? I didn't today, but I wrote everything down. Okay, that's and what I'm I And I explained at. it to the PUCO, and he wrote it down, too. So document everything very carefully, every single move they make, every conversation you have. Make sure you get names, dates, and times, because that's all ammunition in your favor. Well, my son says, he's so worried about this, and I told him, I says, let me handle this. And he says he's going to pay it by the end of this week. And he says that, you know what, if it goes on his credit before then, he said he will sue them. And if they don't pay him back, he will sue them. Um, but he he wants to pay it. And he says, you know, can they still put it on there even though he pays it? And I yes. you know, I. They can still put it on? Well, let me give you an example. Okay, Uh, four years ago, three or four years ago, AT&T lied to me and tricked me and forced me into uh, U-verse. And I didn't want it. And at the time, when they forced it over to to (coughs) U-verse, excuse me, I told them I didn't want it, canceled the appointment to even come out, Forget it, forget it. So they turned off my DSL and then refused to turn it back on and said if I didn't go with the U-verse, then I wouldn't be able to get any Internet at all. And I'm fighting with them back and forth. I mean, it was terrible. And I had a zero balance, okay? (laughs) I, I I was paid up, didn't owe them a single dime. So the the first month comes with the bill. I pay it. Again, I've got a zero balance. My phone bill is always paid ahead as soon as I get it. And all of a sudden, I get this bill from AT&T, $75 balance on the old DSL. I call them up, and I reamed them. I said, you've already lied to me, tricked me forced me into an inferior product I didn't want in the first place, and now you want to charge me money I never owed you to start with. So she checks the account, and she gets it all straight, and she says, okay, it's all straightened out. It was just a typo. You don't owe anything. The account account shows zero balance, blah, 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 okay? Yeah. (laughs) Well, the next thing you know, 30 days goes by, I get a letter from a debt collector. Oh, yeah. Sounds familiar. (laughs) So I call them up and I tell them, you know, okay, now there's going to be big trouble because nobody owes anybody anything, and I sure don't owe AT&T $75, and there is a zero balance. So they tell me, it's okay, it's okay, it's all cleared up, blah, blah, blah. Following month, I pull my credit report, and what is on there? AT&T, yeah, yeah. collection. 
collection for AT&T. I blew a gasket with a with credit reporting agencies and AT&T, and they took it off of there. I mean, it disappeared fast. So oh, that's, that's good. You know, that's why I know in this particular kind of situation. Now, in my case, at the time, I was tied up in the Midland case, and uh, I still had another one going, and I couldn't deal with going after AT&T. I let it go once it once it got all cleared up. If it happened to me today, well, you know, it would be a different story altogether. Uh-huh. Because I would go after him. I just chose not to at that time because I had my hands full. But well, that's why I know. What's odd about this is when you when you go online and look at his account from this, it's the electric company, it says zero due, okay? And she emailed me the last bill, and it said the required payment he paid on his last bill. And it says after that zero due. But then there's it says on there you are legally responsible for this amount until it's it's credited, okay, but it never got credited. And she tried to tell me that, when you close your account or, you know, like I took over the electric bill, then you owe that amount, whether you're on this PIP plus or not. And I says, oh, you're absolutely wrong, lady. And she just argued with me. I said, get the rules out. And she says, I know the rules. You know, it's someone with a swelled head that knows everything. Yeah. So. Um, well, I know. I talked to a few of them at AT&T till I got. Yeah. Yeah, until you get blue in the face, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's the same here, so that's... So the point is, you know, it would not surprise me in the least. First of all, if I were him, I would not pay it, but that's me, okay? Yeah. Because look what I did. I get it all straightened out to the point that I even remount a debt collection place, and they say they've got it straightened out, and they still put it on there. Yep, so yep, if, you're if, right. If that's the only reason that he's doing it, I mean, you know, he might have his priorities a little crooked. Because, like I said, it can only benefit him in the long run if they are stupid enough to put that on his credit report. Well, I'll tell you the truth, Terry. Money is not an object to him. So he's he's not in it for the violation money. He says he doesn't care. He says he's going to hire an attorney and take him to court, and he says he the attorney can have every bit of it. He says it's it's the point right he's now. He's right. It yeah. is the principle, and yeah, they the shouldn't. Principle. They need to learn that yeah. they don't get to do this kind of stuff to people. That's right. why. That's why I wouldn't pay it. Well, I'm trying to talk him out of it, and I told him I'll type up the dispute letter. Now, this dispute letter, what I have learned in the past is you have to be very specific on them. So should I tell them the whole specific story about, you know, um, he doesn't owe it because he was on his plan and that there no, is a piece you don't, of you don't No, ha- you don't have to go into the details, but you can you can say – uh, the amount is not an amount owed by mm-hmm. XX. It is, right. in fact, an amount owed to XX by XX Utility Company. Okay. There has See, I'm been not, I'm not, a I'm mistake not a, 
it, you just say there has been an error in bookkeeping by the electric company, whatever company that is. Yeah. And even though in telephone conversations it has been confirmed that Mr. X is owed this money, they have gone ahead with collections as if he owed it to them. Now, he did today. He made a mistake, and he called this third-party debt collector, and I didn't know that until after he called me today. Uh-huh. And I he recorded the call, though. Okay. And, yeah, he's got a phone that, that does everything in the world. <laughs> but he recorded the call, and um, he said that they told him this wouldn't be put on his credit until next month. They said they won't do that. So they're being smart that way because he has 30 days to dispute it. So yeah, I told but, him. But here's the thing. Yes, he does have 30 days to dispute it. And once he does dispute it, all right, they if they put it on his credit report, just doing that without validating it, which they can't, is a violation. Right, that's, that's a collection action. Yeah. Because, because it is an attempt to collect. Yeah, so, I know that you know, part. Of course, uh-huh. they're lying to him to encourage him to pay them, all right? They're not going to say to him, well, we're not going to put it on your credit report because we can't. No, that's what I told him. They won't tell him the whole story. Now, he also asked him who owned the debt, okay? Now, he talked to the electric company, and they said they own it. Now, this debt collector said they own it. So we have two different stories here, and I told them, I said, what you should have asked them was proof of, of of purchase of that debt. Where's the bill of sale? And, you know, he didn't know that, but, um, you know, that's water under they the bridge They misrepresented now. the amount or character of the debt, Another character violation. being who owns it. Exactly. So yeah. there's a violation right there. Yeah, and they're building up because I'm keeping record of this because he he drives a truck. He's out on the road, so he he can't do a lot of things. So yeah. I am making the phone calls, and he does every once in a while. Now tomorrow and the next day he might have a lot of time. So, you know, I've I've got to get on this so he doesn't do anything else. And yeah. they did call him. Okay, they did call his cell phone. Um, Oops. It was. Two days after this here debt collection letter was dated, they called him two days later on his phone, but he didn't answer it. They didn't leave a message either. Well, let's hope they continue to call. Pardon? Uh, Let's hope they continue to call. All I can say is I'm really glad you're on top of it for your son, Um, but I wish it was mine. (laughs) <laughs> I don't have anyone else, Terry. Nobody's coming after me for nothing. I have I nothing. I know. <laughs> me neither. They're like afraid of me or something. Oh, God, I, she's that hinkle. <laughs> Even though I might not have won these cases, you know, they know they're there and they know you're going to come after them. But, mm-hmm. you know, but I don't have anything else. There's nothing else. I owe nothing Um uh, all mine are past the statute of limitations, so I'm just waiting for someone to come along, but there isn't anyone. <laughs> well, you never know when somebody will come up out of the woodwork. I mean, my, yeah. My, yeah, my daughter made a statement, what was it, yesterday? I forget the context of the whole conversation or anything. She she says, yeah, 
my mom thinks all credit is bad. I said, oh, no, I don't think all credit is bad. I think debt is bad because that is a four-letter um, word for slavery. And any kind of credit puts you in debt, and that puts you in slavery. So, yeah, you're right. right I don't yeah. think it's good to be in debt to anybody for anything. I'm not yeah, going to change my I'm not anymore. I'm all out of it. I'm done with it. No mortgage, no nothing. I have nothing. Cash. That's good. All right. Well, did we answer your question for you? Yeah, you did. Thanks a lot. Okay. Thank you, dear. I'm going to move on. We've got two more callers here, and then uh, if we've got time, I do want to cover some of that material I talked about earlier. I'm going to go to guest five. I had to mute you and unmute you get you out of the queue, but that still didn't happen. Let's try it again here. There we go. Hi, Dave. Can you hear me? Yep. We got you. Hi. Go ahead. Hi, Dave and Terry. This is Jack in California. How are you? Few... Good. I'm doing actually really well after I just had a 12-hour Saturday and 10-hour Sunday immersion in your webinars wow. again. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. God. Don't OD on me. No, I was up till uh, I think about eleven o'clock last night because I couldn't, I couldn't stop. Once I get going on it, my wife laughs at me. So, um, you know what? One of these days, when you have a big fat check to cash, who's the laugh going to be on? Yeah, yeah, you got that right. Still have the biggest smile of all. Exactly. <laughs> okay, my first question is: When a debt collector fails to validate and continues collection, it's a monthly violation. Is it also a monthly violation when the CRA fails to investigate under 1681IA? Well, if it's if it's a uh, monthly violation to reinsert false information into your credit report from the furnisher, is it not the credit reporting agency's responsibility to be sure that what's going in there is accurate? Yes, it is. Therefore, it's if a failure to investigate creates an ongoing violation for the furnisher, would the failure to investigate on the credit reporting agency end the first time they do it? Nope. Continued. Got That's it. That's the answer to your question. Okay. My next now, remember, is... oh, there is, you know, the Hibernia case, the Cathcart case, um, laid it out very well, but we have yet to get that to a circuit court to confirm. So well, that was one of my questions. <laughs> so that one's you just answered. Yeah, that was another leg of the stool that I was after okay. in my well, case. But um, and here's the thing: when you're going after to set a precedent. Um, of any kind, doesn't matter if it's under SCRA, TCPA, FDCPA, doesn't matter. If if your goal is to furrow, you know, plow new ground and um, set that precedent, even though um, it's a very, very strong one, but you need a, a circuit court to make it, you really get into a situation when if you have several of them, and I actually had three issues in my case that were precedent-setting issues of first impression for the 11th Circuit. 
And when you get to appeal, you don't want to be going after more than one of those at a time. Well, one of the violations? No, one, one, it, I had three precedent-setting issues oh, oh, okay. in, in one case, okay? And uh, so we kind of had to choose what was the most important thing to Got get it. done because you want to make it as simple as you can. Uh, if you try throwing the kitchen sink and too much into one case in a circuit case, they are are going to just get rid of you, just affirm and and not do it, you know. And okay. then you don't get a chance to get that precedent set. So, you know, Craig and I spent a lot of time talking about it, and I felt from the beginning, and he agreed with me, that the um, S2B, the standard for reinvestigation, and what must be decided by a jury was the most important thing to get done first. Okay. Okay. So just go after one. That would be the, basically the main one that I would be even using. So. Well, it's okay. No, I'm not saying go after just one in your federal case. What I'm saying is let's say you go after two issues that need to be precedent-setting, Mm-hmm. You may win them both at the federal level because that's been done or there wouldn't be Hibernian, there wouldn't be Cathcart and those other cases that I found, you know. Um, Did you say it was a Cath, C-A-T-H? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it, it, it's, it goes with the webinar. There, there's a list okay. at that, uh, that case citing. But, no, the point is you may have two or three that are new ground or precedent-setting issues, and you may very well win them, all right? Mm -hmm. Or if you lose them and you then go, you appeal it, and you take it to the circuit court, because some courts, uh, federal courts, they're like, whoa, this is new ground. I don't really want to be the one to make the decision. I'm going to deny it, and if they really want to push it, they can take it to the higher court, right? Mm -hmm. because they're just chicken, and right. and sometimes that happens. So let's say you had two or three of those issues, and you lost them on summary judgment at the lower court, then you've got to decide what is the most important to go after at the appellate level. Pick no more than two. Okay. No, I got it. Okay, um, my third question is, Jesse mentioned that if one CRA removes an item, they all must remove it. Um, what? Yeah, well, that, that depends, okay? okay. <clears throat> Let's say you send in an initial uh, dispute of three or four items on your credit report. Mm-hmm. Equifax comes back with verified. Um, What's the other one starts with an E? Uh, Experian. <laughs> Experian, yeah. Experian comes back with a verified. And TransUnion comes back with deleted. Mm-hmm. Okay? Now, if they don't give you an explanation 
of why it was deleted, you need to ask. Okay. Because sometimes if, let's say, TransUnion sent the ACDV, and let's say it was Midland that was on there, and they Mm -hmm. sent that ACDV to Midland, and Midland failed to respond to the ACDV, okay, then TransUnion would automatically delete it, all right? That does happen. But if they sent the ACDV to Midland, and Midland answered back, unable to uh, verify, or didn't verify to their satisfaction, then they would delete it. That is the situation under which Midland would have to instruct Experian and Equifax also that they couldn't verify it. So you need to know why they deleted it. Okay. Well, that makes perfect sense. Okay. Um, If the CRA doesn't mark the account as disputed, is that an FDCPA by the CRA and furnisher? That's FCRA. FCRA, I'm sorry. Right. And it's FDCPA too, isn't it, Dave? Um, if they don't mark it disputed, no, that that won't be FDCPA. No, it couldn't because it's not. Well, I don't it's know. It's not. It hasn't got anything to do with debt collection. If it's already in there, they it's a debt collection. Uh, issue, but the fact whether they mark it in dispute or not doesn't have anything to do with FDCPA. So the only place that comes in is FCRA. Okay. Yeah, and and that goes on both the CRA and the furnisher, because if the furnisher doesn't do it, and the CRA obviously knows it's been disputed, (laughs) you know, that's what started the whole thing, Sure. Then the CRA is supposed to catch it and do it. Okay, got it. Okay, and let's see, the validation, to have correct validation for a debt validation, a correct response would require the account to start at zero, correct? Well, say that again? If I send out a debt validation and they send back their validation of the debt, it would have to include documents that started from zero, like if the amount was $1,000 for a credit card? No, not necessarily. Um, Okay. Okay. Because what is account-level documentation? And the CFPB has been pretty damn clear about it, and so has the 11th Circuit now. Okay. It means they've got to have something with your signature from the get-go to show that you ever opened the account to begin with. Okay. If they are going to send you account statements, if it doesn't go back to zero, that validates nothing because nobody knows where those amounts came from. Got it. So what I'm saying is don't get stuck on zero balance and it's this and that because it doesn't have zero balance. The issue is, is it account level documents proof? Okay? okay. And no, it is not. Got it. My very last question is when I get a 1099 for a settlement, 
I file a 3949A, correct? Well, that depends on that's, what... That's what we do. Yeah. Okay. No, because I just found the... I just received a 1099, so I just wanted to make sure. Okay. Now, that's all my questions. Awesome. Thank you guys both very much. All righty. You're very welcome. Yes. All right. Good. Have a good one. Thank you. Good questions. Yeah. No, that's, that's good questions. you got a lot of information. He's obviously really delving into things and reading and understanding what's going on. <clears throat> He's immersing himself, which is great. That's why we've got the information out there so people can do that. All right, let's go to Calico. You've been unmuted. Go ahead. Hey, Dave. I got Hi a there. very interesting letter today. I had gotten a letter from somebody called Unifund, a debt collector. So I sent back a letter to for them to validate the debt. Mm-hmm. Well, today I get a letter from Citibank, and uh, I've got that nobody signed anything, but we have sincerely. I've got to look up these names. Whoever G Goldberg is, anyway, they put down all of these wonderful things that they did. They they sent me a an account card agreement, no signatures, no nothing. Then in here they tell me that uh, the account was sold by Citibank to Unifund. So they're writing me the letter as Citibank. Well, they you made a demand for validation to Unifund. You didn't make a demand for validation uh, to Unifund. Therefore, Unifund, or I mean uh, Citibank, isn't in any position to validate anything. You made the request to Unifund. They're the ones that are on the hook for the validation. They can't pawn that off to somebody else. They try and do that all the time. Well, Well, and Citibank is saying, um, it's not our problem. That's what they're telling you. You know, Unifund has tried to push it off on them because they bought it from them. But now Citibank, all sales are final. It's as is. You know, right. so you got a problem with it. Too bad, buddy. It's your problem unless you've got a contract that says we're going to intervene, which they obviously do not. So what no, they're got, saying to you I is, I got a card, credit card statements, and I got copies of stuff from years ago from Citibank. Well, what Citibank is trying to tell you is everything that there was already got sent to Unifund. No, if no, you, Terry. No, wait a minute, Terry. No, what, what, what they did is instead of answering my debt validation letter, they came back and acted like they are Citibank. And right in, the, in the, the third paragraph of the letter, they tell me, like I'm a moron, that the account was sold by Citibank to Unifund on 5-4-2017, and they also gave me a nice phone number for Unifund. Okay. So, you know, if they sent you stuff like that, what you're being told is that's all they've got. That's what they got from Citibank in the sale. Right. All right. And if Citibank says to you, um, when you dispute, well, we sold it to Unifund. Okay, we don't have anything to do with this. 
That's right. their problem, right? So whatever was available would have been included in the sale. Well, okay, wait, wait a second, wait a second here. I want to clarify something. You made the demand for validation to Unifund. Correct. Who specifically sent you this information? Was it Unifund that sent it or was it Citibank? Well, this is the thing. They acted like it was Citibank. No, 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 no. no. Who, who, who did it come from? It says that it, that it came from uh, G. Goldberg, Vice President of Citibank N.A. Uh-huh. Okay, see, there's the problem. The problem is you made a demand for validation to Unifund. You did right. not make any demand to Citibank whatsoever. Correct. Okay, Citibank is not in a position to uh, provide stuff that you requested from Unifund. You requested information from Unifund, and you expect to receive the the validation from Unifund. It doesn't come from another party. They try this crap all the time. Mm -hmm. Okay, but my my question... Unifund didn't validate. I'd write right back to Unifund. You know, uh, I recently received uh, some information that appears to have come from Citibank, uh, in, in relation to the account I disputed, uh, right. uh, yet I have received no response from you. My demand for validation was made to you, and you are legally responsible to respond and cannot, uh, uh, you know, lay that off on another uh, entity or individual. So please, okay. please validate. Uh, as per my initial request, a copy of that initial request is attached to this letter. Okay. All right. It's, I've, got, I've got it all here sitting in front of me, and it was all sent by um, Citibank. The proper channels. Yeah. Yeah. But you just. I, you, yeah. You. You got to go right back because it, they they try and play this game of smoke and mirrors. You know, you didn't make a demand for validation to anybody but Unifund. And Unifund no, is is Unifund is the one that has to respond. Now, I'll tell you what, Dave. On the on the envelope, they sent it by uh, UPS in one of their express envelopes because it was I, I found it on the floor yesterday. But it came from a Sarah Fennell. It says City, and then she's giving me Florence. Kentucky address, so I got to go out and check and see who who the hell she is. Well, but it, it's obvious it came from City. It didn't come from the party that you made the demand for validation to. Okay. You know, if you make de- demand for validation of a debt to me, I have to provide it to you. Terry can't send you something in the mail. Right. I'm the one you, you, you know, um, I'm the one to try to collect something from you, not Terry. Right. Okay. Right. So you you come and say, hey Dave, uh, validate this debt. You know, I don't, uh, I I don't believe I owe this to you. So validate this debt. And I can't just go over and tell Terry, well, hey, send them some stuff and and uh, tell them it's validated, would you, so that they'll give me my money? Yeah, it doesn't get to pass the buck. 
See, Unifund is the one that's on the hook for validation. They're because they're the ones trying to collect it. Right. Okay. But they All try right. and play just, this chess game and the smoke and mirror stuff, and you got to go back in their face and and tell them. You know. You know. Unfortunately, uh, I received some information recently that uh, appears to have come. This is the way I would write the letter. That appears to have come from Citibank regarding the the account. Uh, that you sent me a Dunning letter for. I demanded validation from you as the entity attempting to collect this debt, and you have not yet provided validation. Uh, Information from another company for a collection action that you are engaged in is not validation. Okay. All right. I I will get on that and get it done. I yep. just wanted to make sure that I mean, because you know, I mean, they they sent me some very nice paper that you know I can't even use it for tissue. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's just they like to send garbage, and then they spend the money for it. You know, UPS and stuff. Yeah, then they spent then they spent all this money to send this by uh, reusable express envelope from UPS. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever trips their trigger, it's their money, not yours, right? That's a good guy. That didn't come out of my pocket yet. So there you <laughs> go. See. Okay. All right. Thank you. All right. You bet. Thank you. All right. Okay. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna go back here. Uh, Ohio has their hand up. I just muted and unmuted you. Did you mean to have your hand up or not? Yeah, I did. There was something you else did. I wanted to ask you. When I send that dispute letter to the debt collector, should I send it to the utility company too? I know Terry, you did that, didn't you? Yes. Okay, so I'll send it to them too. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you guys. Um, because this a utility company or even somewhat a creditor is trying to collect a debt from you themselves, or if they're sending you a billing error, um, there's that that law. It's the Fair Billing Act or something like that. Are you guys familiar Fair with Credit that? Fair Credit Billing Act, FCA. Yeah. Right, but that only applies to bills with the uh, original creditor, yeah, regular bill. Yeah. Okay, is there violations there that you can collect, or how, do you know how that works? Yeah, there is a private right of action, but that has to be a direct dispute uh-huh. with the actual creditor. So that would be the electric company. Right, so he could go on that one too, right? Yes, if he's getting a bill from them. Well, he got one last bill, and that was it. Did it so show that, that amount is due and owing? Actually, the bill said he had to pay his PIP payment, and then it shows zero balance. And when you go online, it shows zero balance. So, no. Well, then uh, there's not an error. No, it wouldn't be an FCBA violation unless he gets something from them demanding that amount that's in dispute here. (laughs) That's the problem. He never got nothing from them. (laughs) Yeah, well, they're crafty, aren't they? Yeah, they are. Okay, but on my utility bill that they're sending me when I had it switched, they're not crediting the amount they're supposed to. So can I get them for that? You can file a direct dispute on that. To the utility company? Yeah. Okay. 
<clears throat> okay, so I might have a violation yeah. in that one. Ooh, good. Well, <laughs> the the main thing is just go ahead and dispute it so that you got a record of dispute. Right. Okay. You start building a evidence record. Okay. Gee, I might have some little bit of money coming. <laughs> good deal. All right. No, that's all I wanted to ask you. Thanks a lot. Okay. Thank you. All right. I'm going to ask if anybody else has any questions. Uh, hit star eight. That'll put you in the queue. If not, uh, I'm going to go over to the uh, the other information I talked about at the beginning of the call and uh, hopefully give out some information to people that can help them understand a little more about what's going on with the uh, financial system, not only in this country but worldwide, and, and why it is a... Uh, monumental problem and what it's leading us to that is going to affect us and have a whole lot more people on these calls in the future because there's going to be people that are going to find out that their financial system or a situation changes so dramatically so quickly and unexpectedly that uh, you know ne never would they have thought Never would they have thought. That's you know, like when I went through my divorce 12 years ago. Uh, that uh, between the divorce and then uh, the economy uh, uh, tumbling after that, uh, there was a combination of things, and that affected me dramatically. And uh, it'll affect a lot of other people. All right. Well, uh, I don't see anybody popping their hand up at the moment, so what I'll do is uh, talk about a couple things. Uh, the first thing, I just want to mention one thing. You know, we talk about interest rates, and I'm sure everybody has uh, heard about the fact that the Federal Reserve raised interest rates a uh, quarter of a point, and, and of course, you may not think that's much, but uh, considering that for the better part of 10 years, the interest rates have been at zero, a uh, quarter of a point, <laughs> that's a, a very uh, definite change. And it's not the first or the second uh, increase in interest rates in the last year. Well, I want to, uh, I'm sitting here looking, most of you know I'm a, a futures trader, and I'm looking at a chart of the interest rates on bonds. Now, just very simply, most you know, most people aren't involved in buying bonds unless you're really into uh, financial investing and stuff like that. Bonds are sold to to raise money. You know, the government sells, uh, the Treasury sells bonds, and uh, those are sold to uh, raise money for the government to uh, uh, blow on things that they shouldn't be blowing it on. Well, when the interest rates and the price of bonds go in inverse directions. In other words, if the price of bonds is going up, that means interest rates are going down. And the only way the price of bonds goes up is if people are buying them. So now stop and think. The 14th of June, the Fed met, and they raised interest rates. Now you would expect, just from a logic standpoint, that you'd see an increase in uh, interest rates in the market which would mean if the interest rates are going up, that the price of bonds should be going down. People should be selling them. But that's not the case. The interest rates, based on the pricing of bonds over the last two weeks since the Fed raised interest rates, 
the interest rates are going down. They're going exactly the opposite of what the Fed did. You think there may be a little something wrong with what's going on out in the uh, financial system? Now, um, we're not the only place that there's a problem. Uh, Japan's government bond market grinding to a halt. This is uh, the Nikkei Asia, Asian Review. It's an article uh, out of Japan. The yield on 10-year notes has been frozen for seven days. Yields on newly issued 10-year Japanese government bonds remain flat for seven straight sessions. Now, see, these bonds are traded in massive markets. You got to understand that there's uh, today uh, in the uh, U.S. Treasury bond, uh, just in the 30-year bonds, they have different denominations. They've got five, uh, two years, five years, 10 years, 30-year. I watch and, and trade the 30-year uh, bonds, and there was almost 200,000 contracts traded in that today. And each one of those contracts is $100,000 in treasury bonds. To give you a little idea, you're, you're talking many, many billions of dollars to change hands. And that's just one of the U.S. bonds. But going back to Japan here, uh, the yields have remained flat for seven straight sessions through Friday as the Bank of Japan continued its efforts to keep long-term interest rates around zero. The 10-year uh, Japan government bond yield again closed at 0.055%, where it has been stuck since June 15th, which, by the way, is the day after our Fed raised interest rates. This marks the longest period of stagnation since 1994. The implied volatility of Japanese government bonds reached its lowest point since January of 2008. Trading in newly issued 10-year debt has become so infrequent that broker Japan bond trading has seen days when no bonds trade hands. No bonds traded. And here in the U.S., and our markets have been slower, and quieter, we still traded almost 200,000 just in the 30-year bonds. Okay. Uh, during its policy meeting that wrapped up last Friday, the Bank of Japan reaffirmed its commitment to continuing monetary easing, which means creating money, until, until Japan reaches its 2% inflation target. They're trying to generate inflation because they've been in deflation since 19. 1989, going on 30 years. And we are following in the footsteps of Japan demographically. Demographics is, you know, a simple way to put it is about people, numbers of people, ages. That goal remains far off with inflation stuck near zero. Okay, the quiet has descended on the markets. Now, there's... There's really um, some very, very interesting things going on out here that um, I want to go back here. I, I had started to look at, at one article, but here's something. Some of you may have heard of Zero Hedge. Uh, they publish a lot of uh, financial information, and they have an uh, article in here that's got a lot of really good uh, information, and especially for 
you know, some of the people that just they aren't familiar with the financial markets and really don't understand a lot of it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read some parts of this uh, to help you get some ideas about what's out here and why it's a problem and potentially uh, the ramifications of this. Uh, central banks buying stocks. Now, you know, every, uh, let me say at this point, most of you know the stock market has been uh, market as a whole. There's different markets. There's the New York uh, Stock Exchange where the S&P futures are, are traded, the uh, Dow futures and the, the Dow stocks are, are traded, and then you have the uh, NASDAQ. NASDAQ in large part is uh, technology companies. The NASDAQ has just been going absolutely berserk, making new highs days, weeks, months, months after months. Central banks buying stocks are effectively nationalizing U.S. corporations just to maintain the illusion that their recovery plan is working because they have become the banks that are too big to fail. The central banks have become the banks that are too big to fail. At first, their novel entry into the stock market was only intended to rescue imperiled corporations such as General Motors during the first plunge into the Great Recession. But recently, their efforts have shifted to propping up the entire stock market via major purchases of the most healthy companies on the market. Hmm. Isn't the central bank just supposed to be about stability and managing interest rates? Brian Rich, writing for Forbes, describes the economic illusion created by central banks buying stocks during a time of presidential prosecution. That's an interesting comment. The chaos and dysfunction message is loud, but markets aren't hearing it. The real story is very different. Stocks continue to surge. Stock market volatility continues to sit at 10-year pre-crisis lows. And volatility means the up-and-down movement of the markets. There's been very little of that. It's just gone one direction. It's gone. They've been going up. The interest rate market is much higher than it was before the election, meaning the, the bonds, but now quiet and stable. Gold, the fear of the unknown trade, is relatively quiet. And, of course, I think many people have probably seen various things on the Internet. You know, buy gold, buy gold, you know, all the things are going to clap, buy gold, buy gold. This all looks very much like a world that believes a real economic expansion is underway and that a long-term sustainable global economic recovery has supplanted the shaky post-crisis central bank-driven recovery that was teetering back toward recession. In other words, political chaos in the regime is not denting the stock market because central banks buying stocks are eliminating volatility. Indeed, if you were to gauge the economy at this point by the U.S. stock market, everything must be grand because the Trump rally has been one of our most exuberant stock rallies in history. According to Rich, all of that is a central bank-created sleight of hand intended to distract you from what is happening in politics and throughout the macroeconomy. Remember, the financial media and Wall Street are easily distractible. Not only do they have short attention spans, 
but they've been trained throughout their careers to find new stories to obsess about. We have major central banks around the world that continue to print money. These central banks buy assets with that freshly printed money. That means stocks, bonds, and commodities go higher. Distract you from what? Distract you via the roaring success of stocks from the fact that the central bank's recovery is failing everywhere. As Rich says, the fate of the world now rests on the successful outcome of these new policies because the banks that are now too big to fail are the central banks themselves. The Fed and its central proxies are creating a grand distraction from a story that would chill America to the bone if the truth were told. Proofs of central banks buying stocks to rig the market. The Federal Reserve already confessed it rigged the stock market last January in hopes of creating a wealth effect throughout the U.S. economy. Its plan, confessed by ex-Fed Governor Richard Fisher, was to front-run the stock market, that means to get ahead of it, with its forward messaging about bond purchases through which it created massive liquidity that would be invested in stocks. When I say liquidity, that's massive amounts of money to be invested in stocks. It worked like this. By promising overnight profits on bonds to its member banks, the Fed knew they would soak up tons of bonds. From there, the Fed hoped the member banks would take the money they made off of buying U.S. bonds and selling them immediately to the Fed for a profit and invest that money in stocks, which they did. Whether the Fed was just hoping or was secretly directing its member banks to do so could be speculated about endlessly, but they expressed it as hoping to create a wealth effect. That's what the Fed actually said. Until now, I've been speculating about central banks buying stocks, claiming that was all it was supporting the stock market. But I was also just speculating for years that the Federal Reserve was intentionally front-running the stock market throughout its recovery. Now those interventions in the stock market, which fueled the Fed's recovery throughout the market's long climb over the last nine years, are a well-known fact admitted to by the Federal Reserve. My speculation that the long bull market was driven almost entirely by banks was much doubted years ago when I and other writers gathered at Zero Edge were claiming that was exactly what the Fed was doing. I couldn't prove it back then, but everything clearly pointed in that direction, even as many experts denied it. Last year, I upped my claims to saying that I believe the only thing that terminated the stock crash in January was a move toward even more direct Fed rigging of stock prices via having proxies buy oil, one significant cause of the January crash, and stocks directly. All year long, I speculated that the Fed was merely holding the illusion of recovery together by directly buying select commodities and stocks to drive the markets back up because it was an election year in which they would pull out all the stops. Now, of course, they're talking about 2016 here. In this case, that expression doesn't mean organ stops, but all the market stops, but particularly the biggest stop of all that said central banks should not buy stocks 
because their capacity to rig the markets is infinite and they have no investment risk. Now think about that. They have no investment risk. They can buy and hold forever and they can create new money to replace any they lose. As if to confirm my suspicions, the Fed began talking early last year about the possibility of buying stocks directly. However, they implied that would only happen, if at all, in some distant future should the economy crash again. I stated that this thing that they would like to be able to do overtly and with everyone's blessing was something they were already doing covertly. They were merely running the flag up the pole to see if they could move from working through proxies to be able to work openly, testing the nation's response by putting the idea out there. Recently, Bank of America, the Wall Street Journal, and others have begun to state that central banks are buying stocks in huge quantities. Now remember, they can create all the money they want. They don't have to worry about if stocks go down and they lose money. If they lose money, they just print more. The only questions remaining is whether they are doing so at the Fed's bidding and whether they are doing it primarily to prop up an otherwise failing stock market. By definition, cornering enough of the market to push it where they want it to go is called rigging. What is the scale of central banks buying stocks? Well, here's Forbes' article from May. Among the reports on portfolio holdings yesterday, we heard from the Swiss National Bank, Switzerland's central bank, has more freshly printed money to put to work every quarter and has been increasing their allocation to equities, meaning stocks, dramatically. $80 billion of which is now, as of the end of the first quarter, in U.S. stocks. That's a 29% bigger stake than they had at the end of 2016. Since the first of the year, they, the Swiss National Bank has bought the Swiss National Bank, which is a central bank, has bought $80 billion worth of stock in our stock market. They are the world's eighth biggest public investor. In one quarter, they upped their stake in U.S. stocks by almost a third, and they are only the eighth largest public investor. What are the other big guys doing? Back in April, Bank of America noted that central banks had purchased $1 trillion in assets this year alone. Now, that includes bonds more than it does stocks, but globally, it tells us that quantitative easing, or money creation, continues at a massive scale, even as the Fed is unwinding its, stim its stimulus, or says it is. All right. <clears throat> Now, you have to know that a lot of that trillion dollars in less than a year is flowing across the ocean to the United States because the U.S. remains the best-looking horse in the glue factory. In fact, MarketWatch summed up Bank of America's analysis of the situation by saying, that might, that might be all you need to know about stock and bond market performance in 2017. 
Indeed, that one fact by itself may sum up everything there is to say about why stocks are still rising and why the Trump rally was as steep as it was and why it is trying for a third time to push a hole through the ceiling. MarketWatch notes that central banks have gobbled up a record amount of financial assets this year. Wait a minute, they're just supposed to be keeping interest rates reasonable and financial stability. That's all. At the time the research was conducted, this would translate into well over $3 trillion annualized, making this the strongest period of central bank stimulus since 2007. No small claim, since that earlier period was the most extraordinary stimulus burst history had ever seen. Ask yourself an honest question if you believe in the Fed's continual recovery narrative. Is this what recovery looks like? Continued record amounts of stimulus forever? Yet the story only gets richer, well, for some. The newly created money invested by the Swiss National Bank didn't attempt to buy important but dying companies. It went predominantly to Facebook, Alphabet, which is Google, and Apple. Is it any wonder, then, that these stocks known as the FANG stocks are the ones that drove the NASDAQ to new heights and does so literally every week? The Swiss National Bank has gone from having about 9% of its holdings in stocks back in 2007 to currently having 22% of its much larger balance sheet in stocks. Last year, when I speculated about all of this, the Swiss National Bank had already increased its stock holdings by 41% in a year's time. By the third quarter of 2016, when I was just speculating the central banks were the major driver, the Swiss National Bank owned $1.7 billion worth of Apple, $1.2 billion of Microsoft, and $1.08 billion of Exxon. Remember my speculations on the oil connection? Reuters reported last year that Switzerland's central bank now owns more publicly traded shares in Facebook than Mark Zuckerberg, part of a mushrooming stock portfolio that is likely to grow yet further. The tech giant's founder and CEO has other ways to control his company. Zuckerberg holds most of his stake in a different class of stock. Nevertheless, this example illustrates how the Swiss National Bank has become a multi-billion dollar equity investor due to its campaign to hold down the Swiss franc. In 2017, it stepped up its purchases. Is this situation of central banks buying stocks insignificant to U.S. stock prices? Not according to Bank of America. B of A's analysts call this supernova of liquidity, or flood of money, the only one flow that matters. And the best explanation for the double-digit gains in stocks that was happening in the first half of the year. They called it the $1 trillion flow that conquers all. So, now we have moved from my speculating all of last year that central banks buying stocks were the sole factor that was pushing up stocks to Bank of America now proclaiming outright that it is the sole factor that matters in the rise of U.S. stocks, a factor so huge that it dwarfs all other drivers. 
More evidence of central banks buying stocks in the U.S. Is the Fed in bed with the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, the CME? That's right, trade uh, futures. I owe the following research to Chris Martinson on his Peak Prosperity website. Uh, I'll summarize Martin's findings here, and you can check out the article if you want more detail. After Hurricane Sandy, the New York Fed moved part of its markets group to Chicago, where the CME is located. Now, why would the New York Fed go to Illinois? Hmm. The Fed reported that the move was being done as a safety precaution so that all U.S. central banking operations would not be on a hurricane-prone coast. The move received very little coverage. Only mainstream media organization reporting it was Reuters. Besides selling commodities and derivatives that central banks might naturally want to trade in, such as gold, by which they manipulate the price of gold in order to secure their proprietary product, money, the CME sells futures on U.S. stocks. The algorithms used by the bots that now do 80% of the driving in the U.S. stock market, that's right, computers now do 80% of the trading in the U.S. stock markets, peer into futures like a fortune teller looking into her crystal ball. So the CME offers a lot of leverage for moving stock prices by steering the bots. The largest investors the CME markets its operations to are central banks. The CME has a program specifically designed to entice central banks and to facilitate their purchases through discounted fees. That program doesn't even try to hide its purpose, as it is called the Central Bank Incentive Program. Incentive programs are reserved for the CME's highest volume traders. I'm not their highest volume trader. This past January, the CME wrote the following marketing summary of its Central Bank Incentive Program. The Central Bank Incentive Program allows qualified participants notice the caps indicating the term as a legal definition, to receive discounted fees for their proprietary trading, hmm, proprietary trading of CME group products. The Fed isn't supposed to be a profit-making entity. Oh, wait a minute. Why would they be doing proprietary trading? They legally define qualified participants as a non-U.S. central bank, multilateral development bank, multilateral financial institution, or an international organization of central banks. Said institutions must execute all trades in the qualified participant's name. After all, you wouldn't want a proxy using the name of the ultimate money source if that were the Fed or if it were acting on behalf of the Fed. You wouldn't want the Fed's name in any way associated with the trade. Did the Fed move its markets group to the same place as the CME in order to develop proxy trading relationships with all of the central banks in the world that use the CME for trading in oil and stock futures? Strangely, not a single central bank on earth shows any CME products on its balance sheet. But surely the CME does not have this dedicated program for the sake of serving no one. Since CME incentive programs are reserved for the CME's highest volume traders, 
basically offering a bulk discount. Central banks must be purchasing CME products and not disclosing so on their balance sheets. Why the apparent secrecy on the part of central banks as to their participation? Not long after the Fed's move to CME land, Zero Hedge reported finding this little tidbit in one of the job descriptions at the Fed's new market trading office. Perform account services to foreign central banks, international agencies, and U.S. government agencies. Hmm. The CME group requires that central banks open accounts in their own name, but that those accounts must be managed by a CME group clearing firm or FCM, Futures Commission Merchant, for their proprietary trades and or trades done on their behalf by an asset manager. I wonder if people working in the Federal Reserve's markets group engaged in account services to foreign central banks could serve as asset managers for a central bank with an account at the CME. Hmm. Just wondering. In which case might they not help manage those central banks' purchases in a manner that serves the aims of the Federal Reserve? Just a thought. Maybe the Fed is just nearby to counsel them or urge them or provide incentives to make certain stock trades at certain times. Maybe the Fed's move to the place where central banks of the world trade at a time when central banks buying stocks in the U.S. has become a new phenomenon is all one big coincidence. Regardless, central banks are clearly engaged in massive U.S. stock trades. You don't get those bulk fee discounts any other way. According to the Reuters article uh, above, the satellite office in the Midwest readies the New York Fed for perhaps the most delicate U.S. interest rate hike ever. Now we're back to interest rates in the Fed. With rates having been near zero for more than six years and the markets flooded with reserves, the Fed will rely on an array of new tools to help it tighten policy likely later this year. Maybe the move had less to do with fear created by Hurricane Sandy than it had to do with establishing the new tools that would help the New York Fed achieve intervention readiness for managing its first interest rate increase without crashing stocks. I suppose only uh, I suppose one way to safely avoid a market crash when making your much feared first interest rate increase would be to get other central banks to jump in with rescue stock purchases if the stock market dared to respond negatively. Remember how the market leaped upward for a few days after the first increase? That's pretty queer, isn't it? I mean, really. They raise interest rates and the market go, oh man, this is really great. Let's buy stocks. Yeah, right. Was that the central banks jumping in before their new machine was fully calibrated? Or maybe giving a more than necessary boost just to err on the safe side? Hmm. We may never know, but we now certainly do know that central banks trade U.S. stocks and a lot of it. We also know the CME's incentive program for facilitating central bank stock futures trades and other kinds of trade was created in July of 2013. So it too is a recent innovation. Interestingly, the program lists one of the core principles as 
Prevention of Market Disruption. Plunge Protection Team, anyone? Another sliver of proof comes from the Bank of Finland. That's quite a ways away. Which states that it started buying stocks in 2014. Still a recent innovation and that it plans to ramp that up. When yields started to get really low and closer to zero in 2014, we decided to start equity investments, said Jarno Ives, head of investments at the Bank of Finland, who said he plans to increase his allocation to stocks. Oh, a couple of other parts of that job description. Interfaces with market participants to obtain context for asset price movements. Hmm. Relates developments in financial markets to issues pertaining to financial stability. Plans and executes transactions in foreign exchange or fixed income markets. Fixed income is like bonds and stuff. On behalf of the U.S. monetary authorities, foreign central banks, and other customers. Would these market participants be the central banks that are the qualified participants in the CME's incentive program? And would the asset price movements be intentionally targeted asset price movements and not just observations of natural market movements? Hmm, just asking. Follow the money to see where central bank rigging of sticks all ends up. Of stocks, I should say. It's a typo here. The precarious part of this equation is what it shows of the law of diminishing returns that I keep harping about is an economic fundamental that cannot be averted even by central banks. The further we have gone into the recovery, or the so-called recovery, the greater the amount of global stimulus that has been needed to keep the recovery afloat. And the more direct and broad the intervention has had to become. Well, if we're in a recovery, the intervention and need for extra stuff should be diminishing. But it's going the other way. There is no global reduction of stimulus so far. The only thing that has shifted is where the stimulus is coming from. I've always stated that the recovery program is completely unsustainable and that all signs of life end as soon as the artificial life support is removed. Ah, what happens when the QE stops? That's when the merry-go-round stops, everybody. The patient has been dead since 2008. We have gone from the Fed and or U.S. Treasury buying stocks to save a few key companies, an innovation at the time that was worrisome to many, to numerous central banks buying up large swaths of the market. The stock intervention has become greater, not smaller, because of the law of diminishing returns. You have to ask yourself, as I did about Carmageddon, what is the end game here? What happens when central banks need to unwind from these positions? and so start to flood the market with these stocks. If there's more supply than demand, what do you think will happen to the price? I think the answer is that they can no more do that than they can bring the recovery to a successful conclusion. Hence the continued massive stimulus a decade after it all began, even as they talk of unwinding. It is absurd that anyone thinks the Fed is unwinding successfully when everyone else 
has been maintaining or increasing stimulus and when much of that flows to the U.S. To see where this all goes, we have only to look at Japan, where again, the law of diminishing returns erodes endlessly at their goals. Japan entered the game of rigging its stock market back in the 1990s. And it is still as desperately stuck in this liquidity trap as ever. There is no end game. A recent poll of currency reserve managers at reserve banks showed that 80% of the 18 central banks polled plan to increase their investment in stocks. That was almost double the number of those interested in buying corporate bonds. Hmm. They're buying stocks instead of bonds. These people are flying by the seats of their pants to go where no man or one yelling has ever gone before. They are trying to figure their way out as they go, just like Japan, which finds itself endlessly pitched back into new and greater rounds of QE every time it tries to taper. As a result, the Bank of Japan has now become one of the top five owners in 81 companies on the Japan Nikkei 225. That's their big stock market. And is close to being the number one owner in 50 of those companies, effectively nationalizing those stocks. The Bank of Japan has been purchasing assets, including exchange-traded funds. Now, most people, most of you guys maybe have heard of ETFs, and thus indirectly company stocks. From a policy perspective, efforts to weaken Japan's currency by lowering interest rates to negative levels has not worked and has attracted criticism, particularly from financial institutions. It seems that now the emphasis will be on weakening the yen as well as propping up stock prices. In the parlance of the gambling community, the Bank of Japan has become the biggest whale in the market, holding a large share of stocks listed on the Tokyo stock, stock market. Therefore, many investors have become increasingly focused not on company fundamentals, but on the Bank of Japan's daily purchases. It's estimated that the Bank of Japan now owns about 60% of Japan's domestic ETFs, and it's expected the Bank of Japan could continue purchasing more ETFs through 2017. Market bulls are happy with the Bank of Japan purchases. I mean, who wouldn't be, right? But opponents say the central bank is artificially inflating valuations and ironically discouraging companies from becoming more efficient. Companies don't have to become more efficient to you know, make their uh, stock value go up. Huh, the Bank of Japan is doing it for them. Interestingly, Japan's Nikkei 225 stock average is actually down more than 8% year-to-date. Diminishing returns, anyone? Hmm. Although one might argue its fate could have been worse without central bank buying. Of course, the Bank of Japan's program is not unique. The Bank of England has a corporate debt purchase program worth about 
U.S. $13 billion, and the European Central Bank has a similar program. The Bank of Japan is already buying ETFs at an annual pace of 300 billion yen, $2.4 billion, in addition to its existing annual purchase program, worth about 3 trillion yen. The Swiss, Israeli, and Hong Kong central banks have also been, or are small-scale investors in stock markets, but more aggressive buying may now be called for. This could mean ramping up purchases of Japanese stocks to 10% of the outstanding total, or about 50 trillion yen from around 0.5% currently. Such a move would contribute to pushing up equity prices, pushing up stock prices. If the Bank of Japan expands its ETF purchasing plan in June or July, then that could be the trigger for the European Central Bank to look more closely at this, said J.P. Morgan's, I can't even pronounce this guy's name. Purchasing stocks would also go some way to supporting bank valuations, which have been hammered in recent months by the low and negative yields and a dismal first quarter trading environment. The hope of central banks is to create a self-sustaining illusion wherein people will see a market that appears healthy and growing and then jump in and take off where the central bank leaves off. And who, when you jump in, the, the public comes in, who sells the stock to them but the central bank? And then who's left holding the bag? As we can see from Japan, the results are not that positive, and the illusion certainly has never become self-sustaining. It is more of delusion. No central bank has navigated its way out of this so far. China, for having done the same thing, is probably worse off than Japan, truth be known, beyond the always deceptive cover of its double bookkeeping system. You can't, you can't trust the, uh, the numbers that come out of uh, China at all. You see, at the end of the day, this is not just stock manipulation. It is cover-your-ass time. The Fed's recovery is a failure because it was never sustainable from its onset. It was a bankrupt idea. For the recovery to be called a success, gross domestic product would have to have improved. And it has done nothing but doggedly follow a downward path for years. Clearly not a recovery. Gross domestic product growth well is well under 2% and can hardly be called a recovery. The end game was supposed to be that a thriving economy would be able to absorb the Fed's very gradual unwinding. But that vital economy never emerged. The central banks have painted themselves into a corner. By their own designs, they get no interest off of all the bonds they sold, or they hold. They cannot sell them without substantially raising the interest rate <clears throat> on the national debts of the nations they are obligated by charter to serve. And remember, the central banks are obligated by charter to serve the nations. But what are they doing? They're investing for profits in the stock market. The ECB now owns 40% of Europe's national debts. The central bank owns 40% of their national debts. So they buy stocks to maintain the illusion of recovery 
and to have some place to put the money they keep on their balance sheets. Then they cannot sell those without crashing their own stock markets. So the game continues to spiral upward in terms of the aggregate of central bank investments as seen in Japan and in China, and now the U.S. Some call it the liquidity trap. Uh, history of central banks buying stocks. 20 years ago, central banks didn't even think of buying stocks. It may have happened in odd instances, but it was an anomaly if it did as a way to save a specific bank or credit union. During our first plunge into the Great Recession, the Federal Reserve and the U.S. Treasury bought up large amounts of stock in order to save companies that were either vital to U.S. employment or to financial markets that were dying from their own mistakes. Those were efforts to save specific key corporations. In subsequent years, the Bank of Japan and the People's Bank of China soaked up stocks in massive amounts more or less across the board not to save specific vital companies, but to save their stock markets. The Chinese seized total central control of their market, even mandating that certain speculators stay out of the market, mandating that various proxies buy large volumes of stocks and locking the stocks that were falling worst out of trading. You know, if stocks are falling, they just tell them you can't trade them now. That'll keep it from going down, won't it? As a result, they created a perfectly healthy and real stock market, right? No. They created a centrally controlled illusion that is not a free market at all. It is merely a fatalistically predetermined game in which the government has decided the market, a term that now requires air quotes, will do well. To achieve that end, the government or its central bank does whatever it needs to do in order to keep stocks up. We all know China's market became completely rigged. We are just now seeing it in the mainstream media that the U.S. stock market is also increasingly rigged by central banks buying stocks. What about the official reason banks give for central banks buying stocks? The main reason presented for central banks buying stocks is that all of their economic stimulus has resulted in hugely bloated balance sheets, and they need to invest that money somewhere. To which I ask, why? When did making a profit become an operating objective of central banks, which like to claim they are not about profit making? Since central banks are the first to claim they are not about making profits, that is a completely illegitimate reason for buying stocks. But that's the cover-your-ass reason banksters give. According to Bank of America, nearly $11 trillion, trillion in global assets yielded negative interest last year. Thus, central banks are forced to reach for yield in riskier assets like everyone else. Really? That was all they're doing. Central banks created that situation intentionally, and the Federal Reserve has been saying it wants to unwind its balance sheet. If so, why does it want to make bigger profits on the money it supposedly wants to unwind? It's a completely self-contradictory argument. 
yet the experts are readily buying into it. If you buy their argument, then you have to admit that central bank policies are hurting the central banks just like they are hurting retirees and everyone else who needs yield in order to survive. But why does the bank, which has the power to print money at will, care about earning it the hard way? No, I think it is really entirely about propping up their own stock markets. We know that is why Japan and China have been doing it. Why would the U.S. be any different, even if the Fed hides behind proxies? In the National Bank of Switzerland's case, a different reason altogether is presented, which has some truth to it. The Swiss franc is hugely popular when times are bad. When everyone wants to buy francs, the value of the franc is driven up relative to other currencies, which makes it hard for Swiss companies to compete for international trade. To offset this, the Swiss National Bank tries to buy up other currencies. They have to put the foreign money somewhere, so they are investing it in top U.S. companies. In proportion to the size of its national economy, the Swiss National Bank's balance sheet is the most bloated of any major central bank and still growing with no end in sight. Convenient alignment of Fed interests with Frankish interests. The problems with central banks investing in stocks. Um, with central banks having the capacity to create money by decree anytime they want to, investment risk means little to nothing. Lose your money, it ceases to exist. In that case, just create more of it. With their ability to create unlimited amounts of zero cost, just add some ones and zeros to an account somewhere, their capacity to move markets they choose to invest in is almost unlimited. Essentially, the only limit on how much they can do is inflation, which throughout the Great Recession has never posed as a limiting factor. For those few who are still unfamiliar, this is how central banks who create fiat money out of thin air and for whom acquisition cost is a meaningless term are increasingly nationalizing the equity capital markets. As the Wall Street Journal puts it, these central banks care relatively little about whether such investments make profits or losses. Though they can matter politically, because they can always print more of their currency. So risk is less important, analysts say. And since risk was no longer part of the equation, leaving only return, central banks started buying stocks. So between central banks outbidding each other to buy risky assets with money that is constantly created at no cost, very soon all other private investors will be crowded out, but not before every stock is trading at valuations that even CNBC guests won't be able to justify. The bad news is that as more people realize that a free market now only exists in textbooks and that Soviet-style central planning is the only game in town, confident, uh, confidence in price formation will evaporate in turn pushing even more market participants out of the quote-unquote market. 
until only central banks are left bidding on each other's otherwise worthless stock certificates. At the same time, efforts to invest reserve funds more broadly mean that more markets will be subject to what some critics describe as central bank distortion, as large and often price insensitive buyers run the risk of driving up prices and reducing prospective returns for other market participants, for somebody that actually legitimately wants to make money, in other words. For virtually all central banks, however, the grotesque central planning shift of the past decade means that instead of engaging in monetary policy, the world's central banks are now activist hedge funds who are focused first and foremost on investment management. And at the current rate of expansion, within a few years, the world's monetary authorities who are tasked with financial stability will have acquired a majority of the world's equity tranche, effectively nationalizing it. Even the Wall Street Journal denies the argument that central banks have to care at all about making a profit. As Russia became more of a free market economy, the United States has started to look more like the centrally planned economy of the former Soviet Union. Markets have been centrally manipulated beyond repair. As always, the central planners have the arrogance of the elite that causes them to think that they have the brilliance to guide and control the markets of entire nations and even the entire world. How can anyone believe that such hubris will not end in total financial collapse? That's a really, really, really interesting article. Very, very, very interesting. I hope that shed some light uh, to a few people so that you could get a little better idea of what's actually going on out there. And it's worldwide. It's not just here. So um, it really, truly is amazing. And, And when this stuff blows up, and it's going to, it's going to. Make no mistake about it. This can only go on so long. And when it blows up, it's going to be like an atomic bomb going off. And it's not just going to be on this shore or another shore. It's going to, because of the intertwinement of all these financial markets, just like all these foreign entities investing in U.S. stocks, this stuff will zip back and forth between continents like nobody's business because all this trading is electronic. All the money moves electronically. Boom, boom, boom. And uh, it's going to be a monumental disaster, and people are going to be caught up in it, and you aren't going to have any control over it whatsoever. And when it happens, it is most likely going to happen so fast that you won't have time to prepare. So you need to be prepared in advance. So um, we're... uh, just about at uh, the end of the call here, um, we had somebody that mentioned a uh, uh, a decision, a TCPA decision. I, I'll touch on that briefly here. Uh, there was a decision by the uh, Second Circuit Court of Appeals that is very much at odds, and it's going to create problems because the Second Circuit ruled that people can't notify 
somebody that they have a contract with, like say if you uh, got a credit card with Chase, and in their credit card agreement it, it said you agree to uh, you know uh, accept automated calls on on your cell phone from us or anybody that would attempt to collect on these debts, so on and so forth. Second Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that you can't withdraw your consent like the FCC has stated you can because what they did is they went to the common law and they said that's part of a contract and you can't unilaterally change the terms of the contract. Oh, how sneaky. Oh, yeah. But the thing is, what about if somebody, you know, that doesn't affect the FDCPA. So let's say you got a debt collector. Wait a minute. Okay, then. If a debt buyer buys out an an alleged debt, uh, excuse me, you can't unilaterally change the terms of a contract and you didn't enter into a contract with them. Well, see, that's just it. You're, there's it's going to really make yeah. things sticky. This, it exactly is. And uh, Jesse is extremely upset about this ruling. Uh, in fact, uh, I, I talked to He and I had a couple long conversations over the last couple of days over the weekend. And uh, um, he, when he gets back, he is going to contact the attorney in that case and find out whether they're uh, planning on appealing it to the Supreme Court. I certainly hope so, because that is bad precedent. Yeah, but uh, there's a lot of angles on that. So uh, they'll, we'll have more discussion on that. And without a doubt, uh, tomorrow night, Jesse will have something to say on the Tuesday night call. So, And speaking of that, I'm going to go ahead and wrap things up here. Uh, there is a call tomorrow night, uh, Blog Talk Radio, and that starts at 8 o'clock Eastern Time. And then, of course, Terry's Wednesday call, well, she's going to have that, only she's going to have it on Thursday again because that's what's going on these days. <laughs> Her call is on the same number, the same pin and everything else, uh, same time of the day. It's just uh, she pushed everything forward today. So it's on Thursday night at 8 o'clock Eastern. And if you uh, haven't, uh, gotten yourself if you're new you haven't gotten on her reminder list send an email to queensongbird at gmail.com and say please put me on the list and uh, he, she doesn't send out the call reminders to everybody now because of the restrictions on her uh, email stuff so uh, once you get the reminders uh, make sure you take note of that because you can't wait and oh well you know I forgot what the number and the pin was you know well it's on the website but if somebody is not a member uh, you need to grab that information and, and put it down. Don't depend on it uh, being sent to you every week, being spoon-fed like you're uh, you know, 14 months old. So uh, I would like to thank everybody uh, for joining us tonight. Thank you, Terry. I hope what I went over helped some people have a little better understanding how dire the situation is and how bad the situation has gotten out here uh, in these markets. You know, I talk from time to time about being a trader. Jesse's mentioned it. The markets to trade have been extraordinarily difficult because of all this manipulation and lack of volatility. And uh, now hopefully people have got a little better understanding as to why things are this way. And when this all comes unraveled, it's going to be 
very, very devastating worldwide. It's going to create chaos that you can't imagine. So, you know, have some money tucked away, cash. Cash is king. Uh, get rid of your debts if you can, if you've got them. I'm debt-free. And, uh, <coughs> excuse me, and have some, have a few food supplies put away. You know, you don't need a, a year's worth of food, but things can change in a real hurry. And if uh, things happen with the banking system, remember the banking system is all electronic and it can be shut down in a blink. If you don't have cash on hand, how are you going to get gas? How are you going to buy groceries when the ATMs don't work and when your bank has the doors locked? And it doesn't you, you doesn't matter why. It only matters that it is, that that situation exists. And there will be a lot of people that will be in very dire straits. And those of us that plan ahead a little bit and have cash on hand and stuff, should that uh, come along, our lives will be much better than many, many millions of other people that live literally hand-to-mouth and Every time they uh, they go and spend money, they use one of those old plastic cards. They don't use cash anymore. That's not a good way to be anymore. So, uh, anyway, thanks again to everybody for joining us. Thank you, Terry, for uh, joining me tonight. And I hope uh, everybody has a great evening. And those of you that join us on Blog Talk Radio tomorrow night will more than likely hear my voice. Have a great evening, everybody. Talk to you tomorrow. Good night. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.